the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Pastor Chip Ingram is with us on this edition of Lifeline. We're talking about his new book, Culture Shock. And Chip, just before the break, we were talking about this this slow slide into moral relativism, um, this abandonment of the sense of absolute truth. And then, of course, we also get into this challenge that the church often faces, as you were alluding to, that we, we either take one or the other, meaning that we either promote the truth without love, um, as if it's an either or, or share love without the truth. And this is not really a case of either or, is it? It's really both and. Well, when it's not both and, it doesn't work at all. And uh, I remember when I was teaching on probably the most controversial subject of homosexuality, uh, the evening we were filming it because what, what I realized was there's a lot of people that are not going to read a book. There's a lot of parents that are not going to bring up these subjects. And so we put it on a small group. A DVD and also just digitally and so as I went around the country I met people everywhere who just said we use these for family devotions our small group, our Sunday school class we've never talked about homosexuality in church or human sexuality or cohabitation or politics and, um, and so that was the passion behind it but what I can say is Ben Ida was teaching on homosexuality I mean you know we're in the Bay Area and you know in Santa Cruz of course you know I lived there 12 years and you know had lots of people both in and outside the church, in and out of the lifestyle, and, you know, we had a great ministry, too, and friendships, and talked very openly about those things, and so I was walking, I kind of hang out for 10, 15 minutes just to see who's here, say hi to people, and I walked up to a guy, and he bumped me, and he said, hey, man, this is uh, this is going to be pretty interesting, and there were some notes, and it said, what do you say to a gay friend? I said, well, why do you say that? He goes, well, I've been in the lifestyle my whole life, and my friend said I should come, so I'm here. So what do you say to gay friend? I'm, a, I'm the gay friend. And, uh, and so anyway, I said, well, where are you from? And we got a conversation. He stood up. We talked for, you know, eight, nine, ten minutes. And I said, well, hey, I'm, would you do me a favor, a huge favor? And he said, I don't know. I mean, we kind of hit it off. I said, when I get done, you're going to listen like few people. And I want to be fair to your position. I'm going to talk about sort of the historic Christian position. And I'm going to talk about, you know, the gay position. And I really want to be fair. I mean, even body language, statistics, everything. When I get done, would you come up? Because I'm going to do this again tomorrow a couple times. And honestly, give me feedback. He looked at me, kind of slouched, and goes, yeah, I'll do that. So anyway, I get done, and you know, I'm wondering if he's going to come up. And so I, I get done with everything, and this guy comes up, comes up with his friend. And, and I literally pulled out my pen, and I took the back of my notes, and I said, fire away. I mean, he said, well, let me tell you something. He said, how you started it kind of blew me away. I said, well, how's that? Cause, and this gets to your point. He said, well, you started out and you apologized to the gay and lesbian community. And I thought, man, are you kidding me? I can't believe you did that in church. And then he said, a lot of us don't know much about Christianity, but under this big banner of Christianity, there's these people, and they say they're Christians, and they hold up placards, and they scream and yell, and sometimes they're violent. And, and, and you said, they're all, quote, truth with no love, and that is completely different than the way Jesus was. And he said, man, I'm nodding, thinking, yeah, I've seen some of those people. They scare me, actually. 
He said, but then you said, there's people, and they call themselves Christians, and we don't know what's really a Christian, and they say it's okay to live together, it's okay to be married. In fact, some of us are, you know, ordained pastors and bishops and all the rest. And, and then you said, it's all love, and they want to be caring and accepting. But you said, how loving is it when you know that the average lifespan of a male homosexual in, in the San Francisco Bay Area is age 43? I mean, if I knew someone was doing something that caused them to live maybe 30 years less and didn't tell them, how loving could that be? And he looked at me and goes, I never thought about it that way. So he said, you know, and he gave me some good feedback. And, you know, it was very interesting when I got done. And, you know, as God is always teaching and prompting you. And we got done and we just had a connection. And I, I started to reach out my hand to shake his hand and thank him. And I realized, you know, the Spirit of God kind of whispered, this guy does not need a handshake. You know, he needs a hug. And I said, man, can I give you a hug? And I did. And, you know, we built a connection there and with his friend. And I, it was one of those moments I thought, oh, God, your word's powerful. When you really love people, even if you disagree. And, you know, then he began to tell me all of his journey and what he'd been through. And uh, and what you realize is when you have compassion and you care about people. And now, the, he didn't agree with a lot of what I said. Um, eventually, that ends up being a really wonderful story from you know God's kingdom perspective. But what I saw was, you know, Craig, if we can know what we're talking about, if we cannot be threatened, we cannot be defensive, but we have to be bold and courageous and really just the the metaphor for me is light. Bring light, but people have to sense that you really care about them. And when that happens, I just. I just think a lot of this stuff melts away. So, so you mean that basically sharing this truth in love a lot like, um, who else? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> you know, it's amazing how we tend to go for And we've all had these, these conversations or heard these stories. You sit down with a, a non-Christian individual, a friend, an acquaintance, and, and say, well, now tell me your perspective on what the church is against. And they go through the whole laundry list. The church is against uh, you know, sex outside of marriage and uh, divorce and the church is against homosexuality and abortion and on and on the list goes. And they say, okay, now tell me what the church is for. And there's dead silence. And it's that lack of balance. It's that, that, that sometimes the ability to truth tell but to fail to do so in love or to so in thoroughly embrace the love side of the story that we fail to tell the truth. And yet you look at Jesus, who was ultimately bold in all that he proclaimed when he was active in his ministry on earth. And yet everything that he said was always demonstrated with heartfelt love, demonstrative compassion toward the people that he was interacting with. Look at the woman at the well. Yeah, and I, and I love just, we sometimes we forget, I think we get intimidated, we forget just how powerful you know, God's Word is powerful. It's not us. You know, His Word is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of men's hearts. I mean, the Gospel is the power of God's salvation. And I just finished up the book tour at Calvary Chapel at uh, Fort Lauderdale. And it's an amazing church, about 20,000 on the weekend, and 10 campuses, and a very warm, warm group. And, and um you know, I, I basically taught through these things, and of course they have very much like San Francisco, a huge uh, gay and lesbian population. And, you know, we just walk through, these are the symptoms. God's not down or angry at people. Here's the issue of truth and why. And if you go back to Genesis, you know, I kind of had this moment that I'd never seen it this way until I was speaking there, and I thought, you know, when 
before there's any sin, whether it's homosexual sin, heterosexual sin, lying, politics, manipulation, polluting the earth, before there's any sin, the first thing, the most precious thing in the world is life. And after God brings life, the next, the first thing you institute is marriage, a man and a woman, spiritually, emotionally, physically. And then they're to be fruitful so they have family. And then when families begin to, to multiply, you have life in community. And these communities, if you get enough of them, it's a city. The Greek word for, for a city is polis, where we get our word politics. And then, then lots of cities fill up this place called the earth that's an environment. And I began to see, Craig, like never before, the thread between all of these is about lies. Abortion brings death before it gets started. Sexual immorality, it doesn't matter whether it's homosexual or heterosexual, whether it's cohabitation. I mean, I, and there I, said to, I said, how many of you here, okay, let's just talk about this. You're a wife, and you found out your husband has a pornography addiction. What did it do to your relationship? You, you're, you're, a, you're, a, you're a guy, and you found out your wife had an affair. What did it do to your relationship? Uh, you, you know, were abused as a kid, and you got involved in a homosexual relationship, whatever. But it, it, you just watch it. Life, the institution of marriage, and then when you look at family... And, you know, now we look at kids, pain, death. Every one of these things really are a lie that has caused destruction and separation and pain. And uh, Jesus is the life giver, and his word gives life. And people just need to see ordinary people like you and me love people that they don't think we would love. And we've got to demonstrate it. And um, this book is about getting equipped to do that ordinary people I'm, my prayer is for a grassroots movement of people who read the book people who share the book people who do the small group and then people who are bold in the business place and ask more questions than comments are being defensive you know it's just people make these blatant statements you know blah 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 blah, and just be able to say wow that is an interesting perspective I've heard that a lot and instead of why do you believe that where, where does that go? If we would start asking the questions sort of with the gentleness, what I found is most people will tell you all their stuff and they'll say, well, well what do you believe and why? And if, if you can articulate clearly, kindly, lovingly, then a dialogue occurs. Doesn't a lot of this, though, Chip, also go back to the importance of the church embracing the truth? And I, and I pose that question because quite often not only do we fail to, to engage another individual, and I was struck by the fact as you shared that story with the gentleman that you spoke to um, during uh, one of your recent trips, that there was a connection between the two of you. And, and sometimes we fail to make that connection, and I think in part because not only do we fail to try to understand the other person, where they're coming from, and why they believe what they believe, but but there's also a sense of intimidation, I think, by many of us in the church, because we know what we believe. We just don't know why we believe it. It's something we've always heard. It's been preached from the pulpit. But we've never taken time to go deep enough within God's Word to understand why that is true from God's perspective. Well, you're right. And what I, what I found out on these particular issues, I did, um, you know, God gives me these little promptings. And so I said, okay, if you open the doors, I'll do it. And so all last year, I, I spoke at a bunch of colleges. I mean, bellwether, great evangelical institutions, and then did a couple things with Campus Crusade. And so I was with twenty somethings. I mean, I mean, a lot. And and then I, when I got there, I would I would say, how many of you in church, youth group, college, anything, have ever heard a message on the environment? No hands go up. How many have ever heard it on church and politics, or what your role is, and what the church? No, none. How many people have ever heard a message or had a discussion on homosexuality? Zero. So, 
you know, on, on, on the one hand, how about, how about abortion? You know, okay, four hands go up. Um, how about human sexuality? Yeah, we heard white. <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> you, you know, and, you know, and so you just want to say, why are we shocked when we haven't taught in our homes or taught in the church what God has to say? And from God's perspective, that it's good, that it's kind, that he's loving, that it's for your best. Uh, I, you could hear a pin drop when I, when I spoke uh, at another place in, I was in Atlanta at a church and it was a, a lot of young people and, and I just I was trying to kind of give fair, everyone wants to jump on the homosexual bandwagon. I said, I, I'm actually more concerned about cohabitation in the church, you know, and when you, and, and I said, now, here's the deal, if you understand, now we have research and science, God cares about us, His, His word and His rules are for our good. Statistically, if you cohabitate, and about 60% of people cohabitate eventually get married. But if you cohabitate, whether you get married or not, 10 years later, here's, here's the studies. One out of 10 couples are still together 10 years later. Wow. And, and, and so I'm saying, so I'm just saying to a group of people, God's not a prude. It's not like he makes up these rules and tries to mess with you or doesn't want you to have sex or all the rest. It's like... Here's the game plan. Engineers design things how? So they work really, really well. God has designed life, relationships, sex, money in a way that it works great. So we shift him out of that role of being the big cosmic killjoy that a lot of people think he is and realize that there's actually purpose behind his plan for us. Yeah, I love the passage in Psalm 84. It was my dating verse when I thought, oh, God. You know, how can I live here? It says, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And I just sort of hung on to that and said, well, tell you what, everybody else on the basketball team with four girls to every guy is having an awful lot of fun that I keep hearing about, and it's very hard to be sexually pure. And uh, I look back now after 35 years of marriage and four kids, and I didn't do it perfectly for sure. But, you know, it's, again... God's ways are good. Well, the Lord, the Lord uh, rewarded you with a wonderful woman in Teresa, and uh, and obviously, once again, demonstrative of the fact that if we are faithful to His words and keep His commandments, He will be faithful and will reward us. Chip Ingram, our guest today on this edition of Lifeline, a look at culture shock. We'll take a brief time out. When we come back, a look at the difference between warring fractions and warring worldviews as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with Chip Ingram. He, of course, author of Culture Shock, a biblical response to today's most divisive issues. The notebook, by the way, published by Baker Books. You'll find it at bookstores around the Bay Area through Amazon.com. And you can also get more information on Chip and the book on his ministry website at livingontheedge.org. That's livingontheedge.org. You call the book Culture Shock. Yet we know that we're in the middle of culture. Wars. There's a sense of warning worldviews, to be sure. Sadly, though, Chip, as you've been pointing out, we sometimes reduce this down to simply warring people. We see each other as the enemy as opposed to really understanding who the enemy is and what he's done here in terms of leading us, including the church, quite frankly, down this slippery slope away from absolute truth into sort of this dissolving of our moral compass into situational ethics and, and relative truth. The big question is, how do we get back to understanding that there are absolute truths. Well, one, I think we got to start with our with our kids and uh, early on, and I think part of it we need to also understand how we got here because this is, I mean, 
people think this is how the world has always been. This is the way it is. And I think um, for some who enjoy sort of the the intellectual philosophical journey, which is, you know, I may not be an intellectual, but I love to read and think. And when I see the journey, it's very helpful for me. Then I realize, oh, wow, this is how we got. So I, I listen, I process all the time around our supper table. And, you know, my kids were just, they'd, they'd laugh and sometimes, come on, Dad. You know, I'd pause. Okay, do you understand what's happening in this commercial? What's the presuppositions? What are they telling us? What are the assumptions? Because I wanted them to learn to think. And so I think part of that is it's got to start with us as parents. I think the other thing, um, Craig, is we have got to return to just uh, a, a commitment and a, a zeal and a desire for God's Word. You know, when Jesus was praying about his church, you know, whether people believe in absolute truth or not, um, Jesus said this, you'll know the truth if you abide and apply it, and the truth will set you free. And on the very last night, he prayed, oh, Father, set them apart, make them holy. How? By your word. Your word is truth. And so I think until we get back in the scriptures and not just little diddly devotionals or hearing from a pastor on the weekend, uh, David said, if your word had not been my delight, it would have perished in my affliction. You know, how can a young man keep his way pure? You guard it according to your word. And so I think that we've got, there's got to be a resurgence of commitment to the scripture. I don't think you can take in the scripture and let the spirit of God get it down deep in your soul and still have situational ethics or moral relativism. Well, again, I think that that fervent application of diving into God's Word, studying to show oneself approved of God. I'm reminded, Chip, and every once in a while, I'd love to pull this story out. You probably heard it, too. Um, When he asked the question, well, now, when someone gets a job working for a bank, my goodness, bank tellers deal with tens of thousands of dollars across that teller's window every day, and there's so many reports about uh, falsified bills going around and so forth. So how do they learn how to memorize what all those phony bills look like? And the simple, true answer is they don't teach them what all the false bills look like because there's dozens of them out there. But what they do is they teach them to study what the real bill looks like. And when they study that bill, commit it to heart and to memory, the minute false bill comes across their desk, they'll know it. And I think the same thing is true when it comes to truth. If we study to show ourselves approved and we immerse ourselves in God's word and do so dutifully and fervently, when false teaching comes along or, or a competing truth, another something that would present itself as, as another truth comes along, we will know so much about the truth of God's word hidden in our heart that we'll instantly be able to recognize it and reject it. Well, I really agree with you, and I have to say, you know, I've, I ended up not really intentionally. I always kind of went back and got more education just to get to do the next thing, and my parents were educators, but I never was really all that impressed with education, and I mean, it's been very helpful, and I'm glad I had to learn a bunch of languages, but it was hard, and I didn't really like it a lot, except I like to learn, but here's what I could tell you. Of all the people that have taught me the most, that have the greatest impact, it was a bricklayer in West Virginia with a high school education. And what he did is he helped me develop the habit of making the very first appointment every day to get a great cup of coffee, open your Bible, read systematically, slowly, uh, meditatively, talk with your Heavenly Father, and literally ask Him, you know what's coming today. And beginning to master and read through the Scriptures on a regular basis. And I will tell you, I think that practice has been more helpful than all the Greek and Hebrew and 
degrees in anything ever. It has been holding on to God's Word, memorizing key passages, hearing God speak to me on a daily basis. And, you know, after the services, you know, I, I hang out and, and just talk with people what's going on in their life, Greg. And, you know, a lot of the problems that we get into, we're, we're trying to fill a hole we believe a lie. And I most always, I try and do it as gently as possible, and they talk about, you know, I got this addiction, I got that addiction, this has happened, I lost my job, and, you know, this, and I'll just, can I just ask you something, you know, very gently, tell me a little bit about the habitual habit of you being in God's Word. And, and you know, their eyes kind of look at their feet, uh, you know, I don't really read the Bible at all. And it's just like, okay, so you have a car, and you put no gas in it, and you just cannot figure out why. It's not running at all or running well. And, you know, Jesus said that men won't live by bread, physical alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And again, it's not a legalistic thing. It's not shoving it down people's throat. It's not, you know, telling the kids, sit down, shut up, and I'm going to read ten chapters to you. <laughs> but it's, it's from the heart. It's life. And um, that's my heart's passion, and uh, I, I would long to just to see those listening to us now to say, you know, what would it look like to block off 15 minutes first thing in the morning? And I, I will tell you what, I don't know what problem, what issue, what challenge. We all have relationship issues. We've got marriage issues, single issues, financial issues, emotional issues. But I will tell you, um, the greatest thing you can do is begin to think God's thoughts after him. And uh, a lot of those things amazingly can clear up. A look at Culture Shock, a biblical response to today's most divisive issues. A new book, again, published by Baker and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, Amazon, and, of course, through the Living on the Edge website at livingontheedge.org. That's livingontheedge.org. Chip Ingram. Chip, as always, brother, a delight and a privilege to have you on the program. Look forward to visiting with you again real soon. Well, thank you, and we are so deeply grateful. Actually, many people may not know that I think the second station we ever we're ever on with thanks to KFAX and the journey with you guys, and God has really blessed us, and we're very, very grateful. So All right. Well, we appreciate it. We'll do. You do the same, and we appreciate the partnership in the ministry. There's Chip Ingram. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. When you think about it, I think most of us that are married can agree that we tend to focus on a sense of happiness and satisfaction out of our marriage relationships and not necessarily looking at marriage from the viewpoint of the purpose of marriage based on the outcome of a God-centered kingdom marriage. Everyone no doubt agrees that a good marriage is more pleasant and beneficial than an unhappy one, but equally important, a good marriage is supposed to be a model of the heavenly union that God created. Joining us today on the program is the founder and president of the Urban Alternative. He's senior pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas and speaker on the nationally syndicated program, The Alternative. Great to have with us today on the program, Dr. Tony Evans. And as always, Pastor, a privilege to have you on the show. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about this new book that you've written, Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. It, it strikes me as unique in that, unlike many of the books out there on the topic of marriage, you take us all the way back. In fact, you extrapolate examples of how each spouse, man and woman, um, should behave and treat each other based on that first union that we see, that union model between Adam and Eve. Tell us more about that. 
often and unfortunately, marriages are not tied to God's purpose. They're just tied to uh, the pleasure that people want to get out of it, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when God created the first marriage, the first couple, brought the first two singles together, it was to fulfill a divine purpose. In fact, three purposes. Uh, he said, we're going to make man male and female. And the first purpose would be that they would be a reflection of who we are, um, made in our image. An image is a mirror. So we want to mirror in the physical realm what we are like in the invisible spiritual realm. Well, God is one God composed of three co-equal persons who are one in essence and yet distinct in personhood. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, but they make up one family or one Godhead. So what God wanted to do was mirror that in the creation of mankind. And in fact, when God God relates to history, one member proceeds from the other. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Holy Spirit. So that's why uh, Adam came from Eve and a baby comes from, uh, 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 excuse me, Eve came from Adam and a baby comes from Eve because th that's how history proceeds, like God proceeds into history. So God is, God is looking for a mirror. So when you detach God from what marriage is, why marriage is, and how marriage works, the mirror becomes distorted. The second reason was for not only reflection but for replication be fruitful and multiply but multiply what not just multiply people multiply images God wants mirrors to produce new mirrors and so the idea of childbearing is to create mirrors that are a reflection of the parents who are a reflection of God then the third reason is for ruling and let them rule so men and women in the marriage and the development of families were to exercise dominion over what God created. So the reason why Satan wants to destroy marriage is not just because he wants two unhappy people, he wants to destroy God's purpose of dominion or ruling so that we wind up being ruled by him than ruling over the creation God has placed under our authority. You know, uh, Pastor Evans, one of the complaints that we often hear from women who are frustrated in their marriage relationship, they'll say things like, well, you know, I got into this marriage and I understand from a biblical perspective that my husband is supposed to be the head of the family, but my husband shows no sense of responsibility whatsoever. He doesn't do a good job at work. Uh, he, he seems to not necessarily take charge when it comes to working with me and raising our children, things of this sort. And I'm struck by the fact that inside of the new book, Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure, very early on, you extrapolate a very important lesson for men. And that is the notion that even before God gave Adam Eve, he gave Adam responsibility. Expand upon that, would you please? Absolutely, because if a man is not willing to be responsible under God, then he can't be properly responsible for the one God places under him. Mm. And so it would be the responsibility of the man and the accountability of the man to own responsibility under God. And that, therefore, God gave him a job, God gave him a home, the Garden of Eden, God gave him his commandments, and he gave him responsibility to name all the animals. He was to be a successful single before he could be a responsible husband. And uh, unfortunately today, far too many women are marrying men who have not owned that responsibility under God. In fact, the biblical definition of a man is responsibility under God. Exodus chapter 34, verses 23 and 24, God calls all the men of Israel and meet with him and to, to give them instruction on how they were to, to function as men. And then he says, then I'll send you back to your family because the family would be in jeopardy if the men failed. And so God always starts with the man. That's why in the garden, God said, Adam, where are you? Not Adam and Eve, where are y'all? 
<laughs> I guess this can also be an important lesson for women to understand that, you know, there's often this sense we hear it said all the time that a woman will marry a man. She recognizes he has some shortcomings and faults, but thinks that once I marry him, I'll get him fixed. And in fact, as you're suggesting here, women should be watching very carefully as to the kind of man that they think might make a good husband, because their sense of responsibility, particularly in their relationship to God in single life, is oftentimes a harbinger or an indicator of what they're going to be marrying into, isn't it? Well, yes, certainly, and two things need to happen. First of all, you need to answer the question, if this man never changes, am I willing to live with him as he is for the rest of his life? Because what you don't want to do is you you don't want to project a change that may never happen. Secondly of all, he should have to pass the test of another man who is the kind of man that you respect and honor so that there's other eyes. It should be the father of the of the woman, but if it's not, some mature Christian man, so he's got to pass the test of another man and, and not just the emotional test of the woman who's in love with the man. A sense of uh, servanthood here is important. We certainly see that modeled throughout Scripture in relationship to uh, our relationship to God and God's relationship to us. We also see it demonstrated when it comes to the design for a marriage relationship. And oftentimes men are very easy to sort of default back to the, well, God set me up as the head of the family here, and so my wife must be subservient to me. But yet in the pages of Kingdom Marriage, you suggest that this sense of headship applies to both husband and wife. What do you mean by that? Well, first of all, we we, we have to understand that the First uh, Corinthians eleven three, God is over Christ. It says Christ is over every man. A man is over a woman. Everybody comes under of the authority of somebody else. So just as the husband claims headship over the wife, Christ claims headship over the husband. And Christ's headship over the husband trumps the husband's headship over the wife, because you are obligated to the one at the top of this pyramid. And of course, Christ and God are perfect. But a man has a head. So if you're expecting your wife to submit to you, then she should see what it looks like when you submit to Christ. And if you're not submitting to Christ, then you shouldn't be shocked that you're having trouble getting her to submit to you because all she's reflecting is your lack of submission. So it is critical that men come under authority if they expect to be in authority. It's always struck me as interesting as uh, men are often uh, quick to remind women that they should uh, they should uh, be obedient to their husbands, and yet the the continuation of that passage says, "In husbands, you should love your wives as Christ loved the church." And of course, if we look at that model, we realize well. Christ so loved the church that while we were yet in our sins and uh, not walking in fellowship with him, that he, in fact, gave his life for the church. That certainly resets that whole, that whole notion of the relationship then between men and women, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. It's, uh, it, it means that you must become your wife's savior. And the last time I saw a savior, he was on a cross. Mm-hmm. So if you're not willing to sacrifice at all, then you're not really, really ready and willing to love like Christ loved. If you're just joining our conversation, a visit today with Dr. Tony Evans. Of course, you recognize the voice. He is speaker on The Alternative with Dr. Tony Evans, nationally syndicated on some 1,000 radio stations across the country. He is also senior pastor of Oak Clip Bible Fellowship in Dallas and the author of a new book called Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure, newly published by Focus on the Family Books. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as our visit with Dr. Tony Evans continues. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline on this edition. We are privileged to have join us on the program, Dr. Tony Evans. Of course, Dr. Evans is senior pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas, speaker on the nationally syndicated The Alternative with Dr. Tony Evans, and the author of a new book, Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. One of the things that you talk about in the book, Dr. Evans, as we mentioned before the break, is the sense of of learning to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I guess that's a really key component, because if we expect to be able to live out the marriage union in the fashion in which God called it to be, way back there in the Garden of Eden, we really need to understand what submission to God or Jesus' Lordship really means, don't we? Absolutely. It means what he says goes. Uh, why you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say, the Lord says. So that means I'm sub- I am committed to obeying him, and my decisions will reflect his decisions. So that means I want to know what he thinks about the things related to my life, my world, my family, my finances, and I bring his thinking to the table to bear when I deal with my responsibilities as a husband and a father. When I ignore that or don't care to learn about that, then what I'm saying is I'm not obligated to find out what my head thinks, even though I'm demanding that my wife and children find out what what I think. And so it becomes a conflict and it, and what it does is creates division and once you have division you've invited God out of the relationship see God can only function in unity he cannot he cannot be at home where there's disunity so Satan creates disunity because we are out of alignment in order to keep God at bay leading to ongoing conflicts in the in the home Let's talk about some of these um, examples of division or disunity within the marriage relationship. Uh, One thought that came to mind as I was reading your book in preparation for our conversation today, and again, for folks just tuning in, we're visiting with Dr. Tony Evans. He's got a new book out called Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. And Dr. Evans, a couple of weeks ago, a good friend of mine got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, stumbled, and busted his shin up against an exercise bike in the bedroom, and this has turned into a major ordeal that what seemed to be at first just a little scrape eventually got infected. Now it's becoming a wound that won't heal, and there's been multiple visits to the doctor's office and prescription of antibiotics and so forth, and it's it's still an ordeal that he's dealing with. And I'm struck in that example by um, one of the sections of the book where you talk about the comparison between physical wounds and emotional wounds and how even in that case, something that starts out to be basic or simple can grow into a festering open wound that can have really severe um, implications for challenges or problems in a marriage relationship. Tell us more about that. Well, absolutely. Um, As you said, in the physical realm, wounds that may be simple once becomes infected can become very complicated and very damaging to our physical body. So the scars that we carry by things we say, attitudes we have, uh, actions we take, can uh, start off maybe in our minds small, but when it gets infected, uh, it it produces devastations in the relationship. That's why when there is a wound, it needs to be bandaged, and uh, you got to put some ointment on it pretty quickly so that infection doesn't get in it. That's why the Lord doesn't want us to go to bed angry before He wants us to deal with it before the sun goes down, because time will bring about infection when wounds are unaddressed. And so what we want to do is to make sure that we are caring for our 
our maids caring for our marriages and doing it on a regular basis so that it's not allowed to uh, uh, deteriorate. Many couples go days, months, and then years without having addressed some things in their relationships that could have been solved easier earlier if they took it more seriously. So uh, it, take, it, it means prioritizing the well-being of the relationship as quickly as possible. And a lot of this also tends to snowball, as you're suggesting, and then that sense of, of being wounded turns into anger, bitterness, resentment, ultimately unforgiveness, and that can become a major roadblock in the success of any marriage relationship. But what do you say to the person listening right now who says, well, Dr. Evans, here's what you don't understand. I, I, I have a spouse that has hurt me and wounded me, and he or she has never taken the time to apologize, and I'm just so hurt and upset about all of this. How can I possibly forgive an unrepentant spouse? Well, there are there are two kinds of forgiveness. First of all, there is um, there is individual forgiveness, where I release a person from a a wrong done to me, even though they've not asked uh, for forgiveness. At one time, I was uh, a guy ran into my car, and uh, and and then ran off, and then uh, drove off. So here, I'm I'm going around with a dent that I didn't create, and every time I look at that dent. Uh, I'm reminded, I'm, I'm upset about what that man did who did not apologize and did not seek to right the wrong. But what that debt was doing, it was controlling me and controlling my emotions and controlling my feelings. So I had to release that person even though they, they, they hadn't apologized so that I wouldn't have to live with the debt. And that was a decision of my will. But what what that didn't mean was that I was reconciled with that person because sometimes people put those two together and those are two, two they related but they're two distinct acts. On the other hand, there's transactional forgiveness where a person uh, I forgive a person and they have repented, which opens the door for reconciliation. So what this person is saying is there's there's individual uh, I'm having trouble forgiving them because there's no transaction. They haven't asked for forgiveness. But what I would recommend a person to do is to sit down with their spouse and say, "One, you hurt me by doing A, B, and C whenever it was done. I'm still carrying the pain of that wound. I just want to let you know that I'm going to release you from that so that I don't walk around with a dent in my soul. But I also want to let you know we can never fully be reconciled and have a meaningful, dynamic, growing relationship until you're willing to address the sin and infraction against me. That way you've defined forgiveness properly, but you've also clarified what it takes for a reconciliation to occur. And there really needs to be then some sense of surrendering from both sides, doesn't there, in, in the sense that the wounded or the, the bruised spouse needs to surrender some of that anger and resentment that is a result of, of the infraction, and the individual who created the wound in the first place can, has to kind of surrender some of that ego that perhaps stands in the way from the ability to say, you know what, I recognize I I hurt you, and I'm sorry. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the, the the person who committed the sin needs to repent, and repentance repentance is not just a word; it's a turning. So they should see actions, fruit that demonstrates you really mean it. You really meant what you said by things you do that are different that they can see, touch, taste, smell, and hear. 
We're obviously, Dr. Evans, in this short period of time, not going to be able to do much more than just kind of hit some of the highlights of uh, all of the wealth of insights that you offer inside the pages of Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. But before we leave you, I'd like to have you perhaps spend a moment and talk about a concept that you discuss at length in the book, and that is this notion of filling your spouse's love account. What exactly is that, and what are the benefits? Well, I, I, you know, when I get to couples, I, I tell the man to do four things, and I tell the woman to do one thing. I tell the man, number one, every day express something of value, something small of value that lets your wife know she matters, like a, 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 an unexpected phone call, a non-sexual hug, a note left in a inconspicuous place, a um, cupping her hand. Something small, but done regularly, because men are tired for being inconsistent, that lets her know you are on my mind. Secondly of all, to pray with her daily. Uh, and I, uh, when I say daily, I mean regularly, because I know you won't hit it every day. But but let her know that God is a part of this relationship, and you're going to bring your relationship, your marriage, your family before God on a regular basis. Thirdly, give her one hour a week where she can vent, up to one hour. She can't take more than that, but one hour, so that nothing is allowed to be built up. That means you don't get to be nagged, but she doesn't have to hold it in for weeks and months, because she has this freedom where you're undistracted, no football games, baseball games, talking about golf. Anything else, you, she, you, she can zero in on your eyes and she can share. If, you, if she's doing this every week, well, she won't need the whole hour after a while because then it won't have accumulated. And then, uh, fourthly, uh, make sure you are dating her. And by dating her, I don't mean asking her, what do you want to do today? I mean, you, you doing things that are fun for both of you. You can't discuss any problems on a date. That's strictly for fun, and you do it on a regular basis given you know, the realities of your life. Then I ask the woman to do one thing make a big deal about his four things if he does them. Just celebrate the fact that he's showing you attention, praying with you, listening to you, dating you, because that will inspire him to keep doing it because he sees there's a great payoff. So everybody wins in that situation, and everybody's tank stays full, and nobody gets to run on empty and live on fumes. Some tremendous insights inside the pages of a new book by Dr. Tony Evans. It's called Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. Again, newly released by... Focus on the Family Publishing. You'll find it at the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also order the book directly online by going to Pastor Evans' website, simply TonyEvans.org. That's TonyEvans.org. Well, Dr. Evans, as always, we certainly appreciate both the time and the wealth of insights and knowledge on God's Word that you share. Thanks so much for being with us today. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.